turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 9. 1 Kings chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. As soon as Solomon had finished building the house of the Lord and the king's house and all that Solomon desired to build, the Lord appeared to Solomon a second time as he had appeared to him, as he had appeared to him at Gibeon. And the Lord said to him, I have heard your prayer and your plea, which you've made before me. I've consecrated this house that you've built by putting my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. And as for you, if you will walk before me as David, your father, walked with integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I have commanded you and keeping my statutes and my rules, then I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever. As I promised David, your father, saying, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. But if you turn aside from following me, you and your children, and do not keep my commandments and my statutes that I've set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land that I have given them and the house that I have consecrated for my name. I will cast out of my sight, and Israel will become a proverb and a byword among all peoples. And this house will become a heap of ruins. Everyone passing by it will be astonished and will hiss. And they will say, why has the Lord done thus to this land and to this house? And they will say, because they abandoned the Lord their God, who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt and laid hold, laid hold on other gods and worshipped them and served them. And therefore the Lord has brought all this disaster on them. Picking up in chapter 10, verse 1. Now when the queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning, his, concerning the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. And she came to Jerusalem with a very great retinue with camels bearing spices and very much gold and precious stones. And when she came to Solomon, she told him all that was on her mind. And Solomon answered all her questions. There was nothing hidden from the king that he could not explain to her. And when the queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, the food on his table, the seating of his officials and the attendance of his servants, their clothing, his cupbearers, and his burnt offerings that he offered at the house of the Lord, there was no more breath in her. And she said to the king, the report was true that I heard in my land of your words and of your wisdom. But I did not believe the reports until I, saw, I came and my own eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told me. Your wisdom and prosperity surpass the report that I heard. Happy are your men. Happy are your servants who continually stand before, your, continually stand before you to hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel because the Lord loved Israel forever. He has made you king that you may execute justice and righteousness. And then she gave the king 120 talents 
of gold and a very great quantity of spices and precious stones. Never again came such an abundance of spices as these that the queen of Sheba gave to Solomon. And moreover, the fleet of Hiram, which brought gold from Ophir, brought from Ophir a very great amount of almond wood and precious stones. And the king made of the almond wood supports for the house of the Lord and for the king's house, also lyres and harps for the singers. No such almond wood has, been, has, has come or been seen to this day. And King Solomon gave to the queen of Sheba all that she desired. Whatever she asked besides what was given to her by the bounty of the king of Solomon. And so she turned and went back to her own land with her servants. Now the weight of gold that came to Solomon in one year was 666 talents of gold. Besides that which came from the explorers and from the business of of the merchants and from the kings of the west and from the governors of the land. Skip down to verse 26. And Solomon gathered together chariots and horsemen. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen whom he stationed in the chariot cities and with the king in, in Jerusalem. And the king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stone and he made cedar as plentiful as the sycamore of the Shephelah. And Solomon's import of horses was from Egypt and Kew and the king's traders received them from Kew at a price. A chariot could be imported from Egypt for 600 shekels of silver and a horse for 150. And so through the king's traders, they were exported to all the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Syria. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh. Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian and Hittite women from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, You shall not enter marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. And Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines. And his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods. And his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtaroth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Amorites. And so Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. And then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrificed to their gods. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this, your word. We now ask that you would please help us to, one, understand it, but two, to see Christ in it. We pray these things in his name. Amen. My family and I went to Sam's Club for the first time about a month ago. Sam's Club's great because... 
You know, you can buy things in bulk. You can buy 45 rolls of toilet paper in one big package, right? Toilet paper for the rest of the year. Uh, you can buy all kinds of things, right? And they have you know, good meat. I mean, meat's expensive, and so it's good. Go to Sam's and buy it kind of a little bit cheaper. You get a pretty good discount on gas and so on and so forth. But, but one of the things that we've noticed in our trips to Sam's Club thus far is the in-person infomercials. Right, the first trip when we went to Sam's Club is, and I'm, I'm wandering up and down some of the aisles with, uh, with, with two of the children in the buggy, and uh, this guy comes on the speaker and he says, free knives, free knives, come over here for some free knives. I'm like, wow, okay, that's, this is great. I really like Sam's Club. I, you know, I, I could use a couple of knives, I'll, I'll take some free knives. And we pull up over there and 10 minutes later after the infomercial, right? He's gotten out his knives and he's shown us how great they are. You know, he's cut through the metal part of a hammer with one of the serrated knives. He's cut, he's cut a tomato, the skin off of a tomato so thin that you can see through it. And, and so he comes to the end of his, of his, uh, of his demonstration and then you have, to, you have to decide, right? Am I going to be the person that just came for the free knives, or am I going to kind of show some mercy and, and fall into the scheme and buy the, you know, the two-for-one, three-for-one special? You know, you're getting a really great deal today if you buy right now. You have to, yeah, there comes a decision, a point of decision. Like, what am I going to do? Am I going to, to buy in or am I just going to have wasted that 10 minutes of my life just to get two free little dinky old knives? And that's what we did, right? <laughs> we made the decision to be that person. And, and that's kind of illustrative of you know, that, that question of, of, of what will we do now. It's kind of illustrative of, of, of the, the Christian life every time we approach the Scriptures. Right? We open our Bibles, we read them, we're asking the question, you know, what is God doing? What is God teaching me here? What is God saying? Uh, who is God? Right? And we read through his commandments, we read through the Psalms, we read through the Gospels, and we see who God is. He shows us himself, he reveals himself. And then we have to answer the question when we close our Bibles, okay, what am I going to do with him? Right? What am I going to do? Here he is. This is who he is. This is what he's like. Now what am I going to do? And that's, that kind of captures what we have here in 1 Kings 9 through the first part of 11. All right, we get a good glimpse in chapters 9 and 10 of really who God is and what God is like. He, he reveals himself uh, in those chapters. He reminds us of who he is. But then at the end, we're, we're kind of in, in chapter 11, the end of chapter 10, the end of chapter 11, we're kind of posed with the question, okay, what are we going to do in light of that? What am I going to do in light of who God is. But first, uh, as we open our Bibles to, to, to chapter 9, verses 1 through 9, we're, at, we're answering the question, who is God? And, and well, first, we realize that God is gracious. God reveals himself as a gracious God to us, the reader, but also to Solomon himself. The chapter opens, right, with, with, in the context of Solomon just having prayed this huge prayer uh, unto God at the opening of the temple, a prayer asking for God to come and dwell in the temple, a prayer asking God to forgive his people, 
right? Acknowledging that, yes, his people are sinful, but, but when they cry out to him, when they come to him and they ask forgiveness, would he be gracious to them and forgive them? And what does he say in chapter 9, verse 3? In response to Solomon's prayer, the Lord said to him, I have heard your prayer and your plea, which you've made before me. Very short sentence, very basic theology, but one that we we kind of tend to read across maybe a little bit too quickly. But but just it's it's really good idea to 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 not read past this elementary doctrine, right? The, The the fact that God hears Solomon's prayer, and not only Solomon's prayer, but but God hears. The prayers of all his people who are in Christ, right? God hears my prayers. God hears your prayers. God hears our prayers as they move from our lips and from our minds up into the heavens to his throne. Right? God hears our prayers. What a gracious thing. What a wonderful thing. What a marvelous thing that the God of all creation hears what I am saying. God's gracious. Not only in the fact that he hears our prayer, but also in the fact that he consecrates the house, right? We have this this kind of building question throughout the first uh, eight or nine chapters of 1 Kings, right? Solomon's acted on the promise to build the prayer which God gave to David way back in uh, 2 Samuel 7. Solomon's begun to build the the temple. He's accumulated the resources, the labor, the the wood, the gold, the everything, and then he spends uh, a number of years building it, and then we come to this point, okay, everything's in. Now is God going to move in? Is God going to come and dwell with his people? And and what a grace here in verse 3 again. What does God tell Solomon? I have consecrated the house that you have built by putting my name there forever. And Solomon, as far as we know, it's not written in the scriptures to my knowledge, that Solomon is given direct revelation as to how to build the house, like he was, like they were the tabernacle. And so Solomon's obviously kind of working off of the blueprints for the tabernacle and, work, and, and building the temple, but, but this is largely something that Solomon has kind of done himself, right? With his wisdom and with his knowledge, which have been supernaturally given to him by the Lord, Solomon has built this house. And so again, we come to this question at the end of nine chapters, like, is God going to move in? And the gracious God of the Israelites says, yes. He says, he says to Solomon, I've consecrated it. I've made it holy. The house that you have built, the house that you have built with ordinary wood and ordinary gold and, and, and all of these other things that he's put into the house, the ordinary stone by an ordinary man, he says, yes, I, I will make it holy. I will move in. I will, put my name for the, I will put my name there forever. And not only that, but my eyes and my heart will be there. God's not just making it holy. God is indeed making the temple an outpost of his very presence. My eyes and my heart are there. In other words, his eyes, God's going to give attentive care to his people from the standpoint of the temple. His heart is there. He's committed. He's dedicated. Uh, He's not going to to, to just move away on a whim. He's, He's committed to his people. 
So is he going to move in? Yes, he's going to move in. The gracious God of the Scriptures, yes, he, he, he not only hears Solomon's prayer, but he moves into the temple and makes it holy, but he also very clearly lays out the terms of engagement, right? He sets very clear expectations at the outset of worship in the, in the context of the temple. In verses 4 through 9, we kind of get this, we, we get this Solomon, okay, what, it, what is your duty now? And so God lays it out line by line. Solomon, what is your duty? There's no guesswork. Solomon has to do zero guesswork as to to what his responsibility is as a king of the people of Israel. Uh, God says it very clearly. Solomon, as for you, if you will walk as David your father walked, with integrity of heart. Solomon, if you will give me your heart, if you will walk in uprightness, if you will do according to all that I've commanded you, if you will keep my statutes and my rules, then I will establish your throne over Israel forever, just like I promised to David. Solomon, if you'll, if you'll just follow me, if you'll give me your heart. I've given Israel my heart. Will you give me your heart? And if you will... You will never lack a son on the throne, and I will take care of my people. I will make them to prosper. I will keep them forever and ever. Clarity. The terms of engagement, the the expectations are explicit. The ones for obedience, but also the ones for disobedience. Verse 6, but if you turn aside from following me, so on and so forth. Basically, God says this, this temple that you've built, the the pride and the glory of Israel will be wiped off of the face of the earth. I will not hesitate one moment to wipe wipe it off the face of the earth. It's an easy thing to overlook and maybe kind of categorically surprising, but, but God's clarity the way that he communicates the expectations that he explicitly gives not only to Solomon but to all of his people are so clearly written down. But, but even that in and of itself is a grace, a wonderful gift from the hands of God. Right? We know exactly where we stand with God uh, in relation to his word. He has communicated these things to us. There's no guesswork in wondering where we, where we are with him. We see a God who is gracious to his people. He's gracious in answering their prayers. He's gracious in moving in to the temple. He's gracious in setting forth his expectations very clearly. But may we not confuse God's grace with passivity. Right? Those are two different categories. Right? God is gracious, God is not passive. Kind of set to kind of set this in context. We see this all the time in our parenting, right? This is what one of the things that makes it so hard to be a parent. Right? On the one hand, we do want to, to show and demonstrate uh, and, 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 and tell our children of God's grace and of kind of model our parenting after the gospel and show them what forgiveness and grace actually looks like. But on the other hand, we don't want to be passive. Right? It's, we're not being good parents if we, if we let our children just do whatever they want to do because they would, they would kill themselves. Right? They would get hurt terribly. 
the same thing with God. God is gracious. God is not passive. Right? God's gracious, and we see this explicitly even in verses 6 through 9. Solomon, if you don't walk in my statutes, if you don't follow my ways, my fatherly discipline will absolutely crush this nation. Right? I will not let you go off happily into your sin. He's not passive. But he is gracious. Especially thinking about this in the context of the prayer that has just been prayed, as I mentioned a moment ago. What, what does Solomon pray over and over and over again in this prayer? Right? If a man sins, when the people of Israel are defeated, when heaven is shut up, if there is a famine, what is Solomon doing? He's saying, if your people end up in this kind of category of fatherly displeasure and they realize that they have sinned and they cry out to you for forgiveness, Lord, would you please forgive them? And what does God say in response in verse 3? I have heard your prayer. I've heard your plea. Yes, I will forgive them if they call on to me. So God is gracious. In the context of, of, of confession and repentance, we enjoy, we enjoy God's grace and forgiveness. But he's not passive. He won't let us just wander off happily into self-destruction. And this is where the, the Scriptures actually kind of teach us to cultivate the discipline of being a good listener. God's not passive. He will discipline His children. But being a good listener can, can save you a whole lot of heartache in, uh, along the way. Be a good listener to learn the easy way because God will not, He does not dread, He is not afraid to teach His people the hard way. He's that gracious. He won't even let me deny him and reject him happily. He's also generous. In fact, he's he's really way more generous than we think he is. As as we kind of move on into chapter 9, one of the portions that I didn't read, chapter 9, verse 10, all the way through the end of the chapter, it's kind of just this amalgamation of all the things that Solomon did after uh, he finished building the temple and his, uh, his own palace, right? He, a number of different things are listed, and it's, it's kind of asked the question, what in the world is Solomon doing? Like, what, in the point, uh, what is the point of all of these verses? What is the point of the rest of chapter 9? And the answer comes if we kind of just think about it in the context of the book in, t- in its entirety. Specifically, flashing back to chapter 3. Remember, b- uh, back in First uh, Kings chapter 3, Uh, kind of one of the first chapters when we're kind of getting to know Solomon still. Solomon now seated as king on the throne. He goes up to Mount Gibeon to, uh, to, to worship at the tabernacle. And what happens? Well, God appears to him and God basically gives him a free ask. Solomon, ask me whatever you want and I'll give it to you. And what does Solomon ask for? Solomon asks for wisdom. Lord, just give me wisdom. Help me to lead this people in wisdom. Give me wisdom. And then what happens thereafter? Well, it pleased the Lord 
But Solomon had asked this. And then what does the Lord do? He says, I will give you all the wisdom in the world. I will super abundantly pour out my wisdom upon you. But I will also, in addition to wisdom, what? Give you riches and honor. We've seen Solomon's wisdom. Solomon's wisdom is exhibited even in chapter 3 after this, uh, after this exchange with the Lord as the two uh, as the two prostitutes come to Solomon with uh, the, the, the baby problem. Solomon's wisdom is exhibited in, in building and constructing the temple, and Solomon's wisdom is even witnessed here by Queen of Sheba. But, but also what we see in chapters 9 and 10, we thought we saw it in chapter 4 when there was an abundance of food, but what we really see in chapters 9 and 10 is, is Solomon being the recipient of God's, uh, God's riches and honor. God is super abundantly pouring out gifts unto his people, upon his people. In chapter 9, verses 15 to 19, Solomon it tells us of all Solomon's building projects, right? 16 plus building projects. Many of them kind of associated with national security. In, in chapter 9, verse 25, we see Solomon worshiping in the new temple complex. What a joy to be able to worship in the temple that has just been built. In chapters nine, or chapter 9, verse 26 and following, in chapter 10, verse 11 and 12, we have uh, this, this picture of Israel expanding, right, to become a nation that's trading on the, at the highest level with the highest and most powerful nations on the face of the earth. But perhaps the one that, that exhibits this the best, that points us kind of to the, to the point here, is the Queen of Sheba. We're told in chapter 10, verses 1 through 13, of the Queen of Sheba who, come, who hears about Solomon's fame concerning the name of the Lord. She's heard rumors about Solomon's wisdom, but also about all the, the Lord's generosity to the people of God in Israel. And so in chapter four or chapter ten, verse four, the Queen of Sheba, when she had, when she comes to Solomon, she sees his wisdom. Uh, she there's nothing uh, hidden from Solomon, right? She is witnessing for herself God's wisdom poured out on Solomon. God being generous to Solomon, showing him or, or exhibiting how 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 wise this man is, but not just his wisdom but also his prosperity verse 4 and when the queen of sheba had seen all the wisdom of solomon the house that he had built the food of his table the seating of his officials and the attendance of his servants their clothing his cupbearers and his burnt offerings that he offered at the house of the lord there was no more breath in her she was breathtaking she couldn't breathe because of the prosperity with which God had poured out, uh, that God had poured out on his people. And she acknowledges it just as that, as, as from the hand of the Lord. Verse 9, blessed be the Lord your God. Or this wonderful confession from this pagan woman, blessed be the Lord your God who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel. Why? Because the Lord loved Israel forever. He has made you king that you may execute justice and righteousness. In other words, God loved his people so much that he poured out his generosity by giving them Solomon and giving him wisdom and prosperity to bless the nation as a whole. 
We're shown a God who is being way more generous than we could ever fathom him being. And not just from the mouth of the Queen of Sheba, but the numbers say the same thing. If we can track the amount of gold that Solomon receives throughout these few chapters in in verse in chapter 9 verse 14 he's given 120 talents of gold in chapter 9 verse 28 it's 420 talents of gold in chapter 10 verse 14 it's 666 talents of gold in one year which equates to 50,000 pounds of gold which equates to 1.25 billion dollars worth of gold that Solomon's given in the course of one year. One year. Chapter 10 goes on in the portion that we didn't read. Solomon builds this ivory throne. He drinks water out of golden cups. Silver is as nothing, according to 10 verse 21. And like, like all the rich people of today, I guess, he gets all the exotic animals. Chapter 10 verse 22. Right, you're just, as you look at chapters 9 and 10, you see God pouring out his, 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 his riches, his generosity on, on full display. And, and Solomon didn't keep all of this for himself. Chapter 10, verse 27, the king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stone and cedar as plentiful as the sycamore of the Shephelah. Israel is fat rich. That's, 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 you can't help but notice that. Solomon's name's probably mentioned way more than the Lord's name in these two chapters. But our theology tells us that who's doing this? And who's pouring out his riches? Who's, who's bringing in the gold? Who's, who's giving Israel worldwide recognition when it comes to her trade and to her wealth? It's God. God fulfilling his promises to make Israel rich. We realize as we think about God's generosity, or really God's riches, to put it kind of in a a way that we might be able to understand it, not only does God's checking account have more zeros than we can count, but his checking account has more commas than we can count. God is rich. He is wealthy. He is super abundantly rich. And the beautiful thing about God's riches is that he doesn't hoard them. That's what we see. God pouring out his riches not upon himself, but pouring, out, pouring them out onto his people, gifting them to his people, pouring them out one after the other, super abundantly upon his people. So what if we really leaned into that? God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God's no, God hasn't lost any money since 1000 B.C. He's still rich. He still pours his riches out upon his people. I know there are people in this room who've probably been hit with bills or catastrophes or expenses that were 
unexpected in the past week, past month, past year, whatever, past couple of years. In Christ, it is your privilege to ask your God to help you and to provide for you. Ask Him. Ask Him. And not only individually, but, but also as a corporate body. If you were here this morning, you, you probably noticed this room was full. There were a lot of, most people I've ever seen in this room this morning. Which means that this new building has a lifespan. And it's ticking down the time that that lifespan has to, to fit everyone. If the Lord continues to be gracious, we're running out of time. So let's ask, as a body, let's ask the Lord, Lord, would you provide? Would you provide more square feet for us to worship you in? We see a God who's generous. We see a God who's gracious. And we know that these are not impotent truths, right? Any truth about God is not a neutral truth. Right? Anything that we know about God and anything that the Bible teaches us about God demands some sort of response one way or the other, right? We know these things about God. Okay, now what, what are we going to do with them? How are we going to live in response to them? And the answer to that question, what are we going to do in light of God's grace and in light of God's generosity? Well, Solomon really kind of gives one possible answer. Solomon is on the very forefront of seeing God work in his grace and in his generosity. God, uh, Solomon prays this prayer asking the Lord to forgive his people in the future and God acknowledges it audibly. I hear your prayer. Solomon asks for wisdom and experiences for himself superabundant wisdom. Solomon doesn't ask for riches or honor and God gives him riches and honor. And God asks for Solomon's heart and instead Solomon gives it to his foreign wives. Chapter 11, first eight verses are among the saddest. When we cross the threshold from chapter 10 to chapter 11, we've just entered the downslope of the Old Testament that doesn't peak back until Matthew chapter 1. We've seen the best of Israel at this point in time. And we've seen the best of her kings. Solomon, again, confronted with God's grace and God's generosity. And what does he do in response to God's command in chapter 9, verses 1 through 9? God wanted Solomon's heart. God gave it to his wives instead. Right in chapter 3, verse 3, way back when we were still getting to know Solomon, what kind of king he was going to be, uh, the author said Solomon loved the Lord. Kind of the grammatical into the story. In chapter 11, verse 1, Solomon loved many foreign women. And Solomon turns away. 
It doesn't get any better for Solomon. But the question kind of in the back of our minds is like, how does a man like that get here? How does a man who, who loved the Lord end up here loving a thousand women instead? How does a man who is, who is audibly told, right, if you love me and keep my commandments, I'll bless you and I'll keep you forever. How does a man who hears that end up here worshiping the false gods on the other side of the hill facing the temple? And the answer to that question, I think, is really by one small compromise at a time. You see, perhaps I haven't been as good at pointing these out, but I did want to save them to this point. All throughout the Solomon narrative, we're kind of hinted, uh, Solomon, may, maybe that wasn't so good of a choice. It starts in chapter 3, verse 1, with Solomon's marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And what's Solomon doing right out the gate? He's marrying an Egyptian woman. We saw this kind of in chapter six, chapter 6 and 7 with the finish of the temple. Perhaps the commentators leave the question open or the, the text leaves the question open. Maybe, maybe Solomon delayed finishing the temple in order to complete his house uh, or his, his temple complex uh, first. In chapters 9, verses 10 and 13, uh, we didn't read this, but what, the, what happens is, is that, that Hiram, remember Hiram, the king of Tyre, is one of Solomon's uh, suppliers and he gives Solomon gold and he gives him timbers and he gives he provided some of the structure of the house of the Lord and so over time uh, it's time for Solomon to repay Hiram uh, and give him what what he deserves for what he's given chapter 9 verses 10 to 13 we learn that that Solomon Solomon's business practices may not be the fairest one. Solomon gives Hiram 20 cities. Hiram sees them and he's like, those are worthless. We would certainly hope that a a, a Christian leader would have better business practices than that. But not only that, chapter 9 goes on to uh, kind of offer some of these questionable details we read in in, in verses 20 to 23 about Solomon's use of forced labor. We read in chapter 9, verse 24, of Solomon's moving Pharaoh's daughter into the house, right? He's moving her into the temple complex. But perhaps the, the, the biggest kind of question mark on Solomon's life in this kind of slow burn of his downfall is what's missing. Our scripture reading earlier in Deuteronomy 17, verses 14 to 20, explicitly says that what should the king do once he gets on the throne? Write himself a copy of the law, have it approved by the Levitical priests, and read it. It's an argument from silence, I'll admit that, but that is not recorded in Solomon's narrative either here in Kings or First Chronicles, Second Chronicles. Why, why didn't Solomon, why is that not recorded? Why, why didn't Solomon write his copy of the law? And then, it's, and, then it's, and then it becomes explicit. 
Right? The exact things that God says not to do in Deuteronomy 17, Solomon does. Right? What is Solomon doing at the end of chapter 10? He's going to Egypt to get horses to sell to other countries. He's sending the people back to Egypt when God has said, Do not go. You shall never return to Egypt. In chapter 11, what does God say? And we're even reminded of this one explicitly by the author. You shall not enter into marriage with them, with the foreign wives. In Deuteronomy 17, it's it's repeated. He shall not get for himself many wives. What does Solomon do? Gets 700 of them and 300 concubines. So the question again is like, how do you get here? How does a man like that wind up here as he is in chapter 11, verse 8? And again, I think the answer is, well, it's one small compromise at a time. And so what's my exhortation? My exhortation to us is to keep watch over ourselves. Paul commands Timothy, keep watch over yourself and over your teaching. What are you doing and what are you thinking? What are you saying? Keep watch. Be students of God's word. But really, kind of going back to the, to the first point and the application there, be good listeners. God speaks through his word. God speaks through the preaching of it. God speaks through the means of grace. And God uses the elders, the officers of the church to shepherd his people. Be a good listener. Don't compromise. The other response is really the the converse to Solomon. One that we're not offered here, but we're offered as in the Lord Jesus Christ. One who loved his father and who did everything to please him. Right As a contrast to Solomon... God says in chapter 9, verses 4 and 5, Solomon, give me your heart. Well, what does God call us to do? In response to his grace and to his generosity, to give him our hearts. Solomon instead gave his heart to these, to these women and to, to fame and to fortune. And if you want to kind of see where that ends up, go read Ecclesiastes. That man is not happy. That man has no joy. But instead, give your heart to your father. Let God be a father to you. Be a faithful son and daughter to him. Give him your heart. Walk in his statutes. Walk in his ways. Abide by his commandments. He knows we're not perfect, but he's gracious. He knows we're going to sin, but he gives us Christ. He forgives. When we take sin seriously, which comes alongside giving God our heart, it makes Christ all the more sweeter. We realize we actually need Him. And we realize just how much the Father is gracious and generous to us by giving us His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's pray. 
Father in heaven, we pray, O Lord, and we echo the prayer earlier that you would lead us not into temptation, but you would also deliver us from evil. We know, Lord, apart from your grace and apart from your work, that we would end up with a shipwrecked faith, that we would end up as Solomon does. In the middle of chapter 11, a miserable man. Father, we ask that you would please keep us and shepherd us. We pray, O oh Lord, that your grace and your generosity would inspire in our hearts a love for you. A love for you. We pray these things in, his, in Christ's name. Amen.